Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, and as always, we have another amazing guest. Today, we have Omar L. Harris. He is the author of a new book called Leaderboard, The DNA of High-Performance Teams. Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brian. Very happy to be here. Hey, I'm excited to have you on board because as our audience knows, we love talking about talent and the new world of work and how innovation in that is changing the game. We've got a new book out talking about some of the ways that people can be attracting and understanding this whole game of talent. And why don't we fill the audience in a little bit about yourself, how you got on board with innovation and specifically around this idea of talent acquisition. I developed this book over the past 13 years after leading teams in diverse environments all around the world, living in the U.S., living in Middle East, Asia, and Latin America, and understanding and seeing that really there was a huge employee engagement gap that's been evolving over time due to the fact that leadership principles have not really matched up with the way work is being done today. So for me, I'm someone who's very passionate about this topic. I've been leading enterprises and organizations and teams of all different sizes. I'm American, born in Pittsburgh, and primarily my area of expertise is in the pharmaceutical industry. So I've worked in the pharma industry for over 17 years, but I've also worked in technology startups, have my own consulting firm and own my own publishing company. Innovation is a topic dear and near to my heart as well. What was the impetus for the book Leaderboard? What got you thinking about it? What got you excited to write a book about it? I was thinking about Leaderboard back in 2006, when basically I was coming off of working for a phenomenal team. And we wanted to document the things that made our team very, very different. And my boss at the time knew that I was an author, and he really encouraged me to put these ideas down and to start thinking about that. But for me, I had to go on my leadership journey. Back in 2006, I was just starting to lead teams. And so I needed to accumulate the knowledge necessary and try things out, you know, from my favorite leadership authors like Simon Sinek and Jim Collins and Tom Rath and all of these titans of leadership. I wanted to put the things that I've been reading into practice and see what works in the real world and what doesn't work in the real world. And so after 13 years of leading teams and applying these principles and developing my own principles, I thought it was the right time to put the book out there because there really is a huge crisis in employee engagement, which is happening. And it's happening because leaders are not developing themselves. They're not evolving to what I call leadership 3.0. Leaders are actually acting like we're still working in the 1980s and the 1990s and times have changed so dramatically that people haven't caught up to the fact that the people they're leading are not going to respond to the old ways of leadership. So let's talk a little bit about what's changed, what's different between the 80s and what's not working that maybe used to work and what are some of the things that people should be doing nowadays? So if you think about leadership, I call leadership 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. So leadership 1.0 is basically late 1800s to post-World War II. This is the Industrial Revolution. We have people going from the farm into the factory for the first time. And in that world, hierarchy was required. Top-down was the most effective way to get things done and to make productivity happen. You had a homogenous workforce, mostly men who with a certain type of background working in these factories. And what mattered in that time was individual exceptionalism. So basically, the model for that type of leadership is Henry Ford, the Model T. You know, you can have any car you want as long as it's black. That's leadership 1.0. Leadership 2.0 is what we call post-World War II to early 1990s, which is basically the service revolution in America. 
So we go from making stuff to developing solutions. You have a more diverse workforce. You have gender, different genders, races, religion, and ethnicities entering the workforce. The hierarchy was reinforced. But I call this the American dream phase. You have all mm-hmm. these different types of people coming in, going after the American dream. Hierarchy was still very important. But now you have a combination of individual exceptionalism and group dynamism. The best example of this type of leadership was JFK and the space race. I'm going to put a man on the moon in 10 years. And it required everything. It required teams for the first time to deliver something, not just individual exceptionalism. Leadership 3.0 is the mid-90s until now. And this is where we're talking about the information revolution. So we're going from solutions to innovations. You have much more diverse leaders with different drivers behind them. So the reason why people are becoming leaders is very different than in leadership 2.0 and leadership 1.0. Hierarchy has been disrupted. So organizations have become flatter, not longer, and everything is now connected. So we're all connected with social media and all the different technologies that we have. The internet has changed the game. And so now what's necessary is group dynamism with a technology assist. So that requires very, very different leadership skills than either what was necessary in leadership 2.0 or leadership 1.0. Hey listeners, I wanted to pause this episode to bring you a special announcement. We are bringing back the IO Summit. Yes, the third annual Inside Outside Innovation Summit is coming October 20th through the 22nd. This year's theme is talent, technology, and the future of innovation. If you are an entrepreneur, innovator, corporate leader, looking to future-proof your organization, showcase your startup, or just mix and mingle with some of the best and the brightest in the world of innovation, don't miss this immersive event, October 20th through 22nd. Check out tickets at theiosummit.com. Talk a little bit about, I guess, maybe change from the individual to the team and how important is that team dynamic now and how is it different than what it used to be? Now, teams are the way we get everything done. One of the primary tenets of the Leadership 2.0 style was this whole idea of A players. If you've read books about Steve Jobs, he really talked about A players. If you're familiar with the Jack Welch's, key principles about the 20-70-10, the 20% star, 70% base, and then 10% have to be moved out of the organization. Everything was around the stars, like basically making sure you had a few stars sprinkled in, and the stars would basically lead and drive your organization. And the case that I'm making in Leaderboard is that actually we're not working hard enough because everybody on the team is a leader of something. Mm -hmm. Everybody who's on your team is going to be great at, you're going to have people who are going to be better than you as a leader at execution. You have people who are more influential than you, people who are better at building relationships, or, or people who are better at strategic thinking. You have to do the work to figure out who these people are and let them lead, empower them to lead in their area of greater strength. You can build an A team versus an A individuals. So talk a little bit about the book and how does it lay the principles out? I noticed that you took a different tactic than a lot of uh, the business book out there. It's more of a narrative approach to it. So talk a little bit about what's inside the book. So I was inspired by books by Patrick Lencioni, like The Five Dysfunction of a Team, inspired by books by Christina Wadke, who wrote a book called Objectives and Key Results, who levers the narrative format to teach. And I consider myself a teacher. So for me, I was thinking about what is the best way of demonstrating these different principles in action. And one of the things that I wanted to show in the book was that I wanted to give concrete examples of how these things could actually work in the real world. And versus me just telling you that, I wanted to show how that through a narrative format. So the narrative format actually helped make those examples a lot more concrete than some esoteric theory. One of the other impetuses behind the book was one of my main frustrations with some of the great thought leaders and leadership was that there's a huge gap between their guidance and actually applying them day to day. 
Right. And what I wanted to do in leaderboard was to demonstrate that I've tested all these things in the real world, and here is how you can apply them. The book is based off of a seminal paper on group dynamics from 1965 by Bruce Tuckman, who talked about the stages of group formation. Everyone has heard of this in terms of forming, storming, norming, and performing. So a lot, a lot of people have heard those four words before. These are based on the, the stages of group formation that were developed first by Bruce Tuckman, who was a, a behavioral psychologist who wrote this landmark paper back in 1965. So I utilize those four stages of team formation to inform leaders of today and leaders of tomorrow. There's a scientific background for what's going to happen with a group of people when they get together. And you as a leader need to understand how to steward and guide a team through those four stages. High performance doesn't just happen. You have to understand how to navigate these stages. And within the stages, I provide what I call team performance acceleration principles. So there are five team performance acceleration principles for each of the four stages. I provide these very tangible, very applicable lessons and principles that as a leader, if you know this going in, if you understand that you're in a forming stage, if you do these five things mm -hmm. or demonstrate these five behaviors, your team will coalesce around you much faster. If you do these five things in the storming phase, the storming phase is inevitable. You're going to go through it, but you can go through it much faster than if you don't apply these five principles. When you're in norming, how do you make sure you go from norming to actually performing? Lots of teams think they're performing, but they're actually only in norming. They never get out of norming. So you have to apply these five principles and ensure that you go from norming to performing. And then once you're performing, how do you keep your team there and make sure it's sustainable and make sure that it lasts? So that's really the value of the book. And I also provide more free templates and tools than ever before has been given in the leadership book. So just by reading my book, you get access to a resource center that is probably the most valuable part of the book because I spent all the time to either compile or create brand new resources that will allow you to implement these principles. What are some of the core obstacles or things that if a new manager or a new person trying to develop their team, what are some of the things they can do to avoid some of the major pitfalls? That's a great question. So I think that there are three key things that today's managers need to be thinking about when they go about trying to achieve high performance with a group of people. The first thing is, if you have an opportunity to bring in new people onto the organization or, or build a team from the ground up, make sure you have the right DNA in each individual right from the start. And this principle in the book is called hiring the right whom. Whom is W-H-O-M, work ethic, heart, optimism, and maturity. Basically, what that means is ensuring that you have the right behavioral drivers, in addition to the experience on the team right from the beginning, will dramatically accelerate your team going from coalescing and moving to performance. So when you think about work ethic, you need to make sure that everybody who comes on the team meets a minimum standard of work ethic. Mm -hmm. People who are organized, people who are committed, people who are reliable, and people who deliver what they commit to delivering. So imagine a team of people where you know for a fact because you hired for this aspect, everybody works hard. People take that for granted, actually. You have people who are much more thinkers or, you know, thought think tank people. You may have a lot of different drivers in your team. You may not have the right level of work ethic. And if you don't have the right level of work ethic in your team, you're not going to be able to get the high performance. So it's something people take for granted, but it's actually not something you should really make sure you're hiring people who have the right work ethic right from the beginning. It's a skill or will thing. You can't make people work mm -hmm. hard if you don't work hard. Second element is heart. And by heart, I mean shared passion. So now we're talking about a higher level. When you're interviewing people, do you understand what really drives and why they get up every day, why they're coming to work, why they want to work for your organization, what they're passionate about? Are they balanced individuals? Do they do good in work and outside of work? So passion 
when you have a group of people who come together who work hard but also are passionate about the same type of goals, watch out. So imagine a team of people who all have shared passion. O is optimism. Optimism means the ability to solve problems. I call it solution orientation. Imagine sourcing for and making sure that the majority of the people on your team, they don't let problems bring them down. They actually look forward to solving problems and understand and have a process for solving problems so that basically nothing stands in their way. They can figure out their way around just about any situation. So imagine you have that DNA in your team. And then finally, maturity. So conflict, what I meant the storming phase, is going to occur. You need to make sure you have individuals on the team who have demonstrated that they can handle conflict productively, that they can handle disappointment productively and move on and get behind the mission and still achieve that. So what I'm advising in the book is this principle of hiring the right whom. If you have more people on your team who have the WHOM, you are more than halfway to building high-performance team. Are there particular like interviewing techniques or methodologies or things that you've seen successful trying to identify those right yeah, DNA so candidates? I've created an assessment just for this. And I've been using this assessment with all of my hires for the last five years. Basically, I have a questionnaire. It's a 32-question questionnaire. And what I do is I ask four questions for each of the four categories, the mm-hmm. W, H, and O, the M. And I change it every time, depending on what the person in front of me is. So I don't use the same four questions in each category every time. I'll give you an example of some of the questions that you might find. Like in work ethic, one of my favorite questions, and I almost always ask this question is, what defines a successful day for you? What I'm looking for in that question is, A successful day should never be about checking off all the things on the list. A successful day is about impact. A successful day goes beyond just getting everything done. So for me, a level five answer is someone saying, well, for me, if I had 30 things to do, but I did one thing that really drove an impact and and moved the needle, that would be a successful day for me. Or if I was able to help a colleague get through something that they couldn't solve themselves, that's a successful day. So for me, I'm looking for these higher order work ethic type of responses. That, that tells me I have someone behind me who really is going, not going to stop until the job gets done. And they're focused on impact, not just action. And the heart, one of the questions that I love to ask is, what do you do to help people outside of work? Right. I get an understanding of this person as someone who turns it on when they go into the office or someone who actually does good and has passion all the time. People who are passionate about what they do, they can't turn it off. It's not just something you turn on when you walk into the office building. So. That gives me a great identification of where someone is in their journey with life and what they figured out about themselves. And do they really want to make an impact? Again, once again, we're talking about impact. Orientation, I have a number of uh, great questions, but my favorite one is, what has been your biggest failure? People have a lot of trouble with that question, Brian. Like these perfectionists, you know, MBA, you know, <laughs> Ivy Leaguers cannot answer that question. But what I don't want to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or don't, or don't want to. It's not like the strengths and weaknesses question where people go, oh, I'm a perfectionist. And no, it's right, not right. like that. It's you have to tell me where you failed and what you learned Mm -hmm. and how you got better because of failure. Everyone on my team who's on my team now and all my teams for the last five years, they are people who learn from failure. So I can prove it because I've done the question. I've asked the question and done the assessment of that particular attribute. One of my favorite questions for maturity is tell me about a a time a colleague you work with disappointed you, but you still had to work together. Mm. So that's just one example of, and there's you know, a lot of questions along that line in this questionnaire that's for free for download. So I give that away to everybody who reads the book. That's awesome. So you've been in the trenches a long time. Have you noticed any differences between hiring teams for startups versus a large corporation? Are there any differences, similarities, things that people should be worried about or working on? I think that the key thing that was important that really struck me, I worked in a startup, a technology startup and based out of New York, we had 15 collaborators, 
when you're in a startup, these elements that I'm mentioning now are much more important because everybody does a lot more than just whatever their job description is in the startup. Everyone has to be doing everything, right? A hiring mistake really kills you in a startup right. environment. One of the other issues that founders have in startups is scaling. Because usually in the beginning of a startup, you are personally interviewing as a founder, everybody who comes on board your team. But you get to a point where you can't do that anymore. You have to hire HR at the outsource and you're no longer directly involved in the hiring process. That's probably the biggest mistake that founders make. Because whatever the DNA they were looking for when they first created their company, that energy, that spark they were looking for in people, that goes away because they're not directly involved in the hiring process. If you're not focused on the raw material of the people you bring into the organization, you're missing a trick. Don't outsource that. Get involved and stay involved in every hire in your company. I go two levels down my company. I can't be involved in every interview process, but I'm involved in every managerial hire that comes into the company and everybody who reports to my direct reports and my mm -hmm. direct reports. I take it very, very seriously. One of the things that the higher up you go, the more you outsource hiring. Right. Which is the biggest mistake everybody makes, either in the enterprise environment or the startup environment. Stay involved, stay engaged in hiring. And if you absolutely cannot be there, make sure you create processes like the whom checklist, like the business case, like different things that I advocate in the book to make sure that that process is followed to the T and don't make any exceptions to the process. It's great stuff. I really do appreciate you coming on board to talk to Inside Outside Innovation and talk a little bit about what you're writing here in the book. If people want to find out more about yourself or the book, what's the best way to do that? Our best way would be from my website, www.omarlharris.com. O-M-A-R-L Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S.com. They'll get all the information about me, all the information about how to get the book. And also, more importantly, I write a ton of useful articles that I post either on my website or on LinkedIn that people can get inspired from and can engage with me and as well as access the Resource Center, which is free to everybody who buys the book. Omar, thanks very much for being on Inside Outside Innovation. I look forward to keeping in touch and seeing what happens in the world of innovation and talent. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Brian. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.